Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we are here to bring you more knowledge more light, and more love. Well, we're back with our third and final Joseph Campbell episode. We are completing a three-part series. This is the third part where we cover some classic interviews between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell towards the end of his life. And he reflects on a lot of things. And in the previous two episodes, he covered quite a bit of ground. All of the things that are considered classic Joseph Campbell. So if you're just tuning in and this is part three, part one and part two are still out there on Spotify and the other places where we're hosted. And you can go back and listen to it and catch up. Uh, And if you listen to those, as so many people did around the world, then here's part three, which is technically the fourth and fifth episode of the Power of Myth series. We're calling it the hero's journey here on Midnight on Earth. So this is Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, part three. But truly, this is the Power of Myth, episode five and six, these classic interviews between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell. So this time we're going to be talking about love and the goddess, which is going to be so cool. And the masks of eternity, which I can kind of imagine what that's about. Probably just how we perceive and conceive all of our various roles and functions throughout history as beings, the human beings. And as with our last two Joseph Campbell episodes and really all of our lecture episodes, the tribute episodes, the beyond the news episodes, which so many people love, we have a guest co-host and she's back. She's here again. Bryn Anderson of Vinyl Force Herbs. Hello, Bryn. How are you today? Hey, I'm great. How are you? We're going to be listening to our third installment of the Joseph Campbell series, closing it out. Are you excited? I'm excited. I'm excited to hear about love and the goddess. Yeah, that's going to be really good. This is always really good. I don't think there's any Joseph Campbell book, lecture, recording, whatever calendar out there that sucks. That's all really good. What a contribution this gentleman has made to the human experience deeply appreciate joseph campbell that's why he's here and here i mean with us in a spiritual sense obviously he has graduated he did a while ago but he's here with us we're still learning from him he's an incredible guy really easy to talk to probably if i had a conversation with him we'd be best friends i have a feeling He's a similar frequency human as Bryn Anderson is to myself and all of us out there, all of the listeners 
around the world, the new listeners, the listeners that have been here since the beginning and all points in between. We're all similar frequency humans, which makes us all so beautiful because our frequency is rooted in love. So we're so cool. Just like Joseph Campbell. He's so cool. But before we get to that, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And there you will find Blue Cobra CBD oil, the highest quality CBD oil on the market, period. Flat out period. Why is that? That is because the extraction process, how the CBD is extracted from the hemp flower is a proprietary process, meaning no other company has it. It was one person's design. Only one person has it. It was designed by a man named Howard Hitt, a.k.a. Big H, and it contains no chemicals, no solvents, no gases, nothing unnatural was used to extract that CBD. How did he do it? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's proprietary. It's secret like Colonel Sanders, 11 herbs and spices. If I got the number, I think I did. So we don't know how he's doing it, but I can tell you it's all organic, totally natural. The hemp flower is 100% organic, organ-grown hemp. And there are three styles, maximum strength, King Cobra, regular strength, little King Cobra, and wild thing, CBD for pets because we love our pets. We want them to have the best possible medicine. Just like our children, I said this last week, we love our pets. We want them to have the best. And we have a discount code. This gets you free shipping on any order in the continental 48 United States. And that code is big H B I G and the letter H again, that gets you free shipping on any order. And there's a money back guarantee. If for some reason you do not like this product, you get to keep the product, you get your money back. And if you had to pay shipping, you get that back too. It's a win-win situation. You should definitely try this. It has so many medicinal benefits I absolutely love it. It helps me be my best self. It has psychological benefits. It has physical benefits. There's so much going on here. It has spiritual benefits. There's truly nothing else like this. So go there, people. Get a bottle. BlueCobraCBD.com. That is BlueCobraCBD.com. And when you're done with that, Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click the button that connects us. So you know exactly what's going on. Whoever's coming on, whether they're, graduated or still in this dimension or we're talking about the wild news of the world you get a notification instantly and please one more thing tell a friend tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts you know them well you know what they like 
You like us. We like you. They like you. They'd like us. Tell them about us. Midnightonearth.com. Okay. Almost there. Almost to the beginning. But first we have to read Joseph Campbell's bio. Just in case you don't know or you just need a little refresher. So here we go. Joseph John Campbell, born 1904, graduated 1987, was an American professor of literature at Sarah Lawrence College who worked in comparative mythology and comparative religion. His work covers many aspects of the human experience. Campbell's best-known work is his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which he wrote in 1949 in which he discusses his theory of the journey of the archetypal hero shared by world mythologies termed the monomyth. Since the publication of The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Campbell's theories have been applied by a wide variety of modern writers and artists. His philosophy has been summarized by his own often repeated phrase. Follow your bliss. He gained recognition in Hollywood when George Lucas credited Campbell's work as influencing his Star Wars saga and more. He has a legacy that's absolutely incredible. And really, his legacy is so profound. I could read a three-page bio, and that probably wouldn't cover everything, so... All right, Bryn, we're officially about to start the final chapter in our three-part Joseph Campbell series. Are you feeling good about it? Yes, I am. I've been looking forward to this. Okay, good. Thank you. I appreciate you being here. And people, if you don't know, you should know if you're a previous listener, but if you don't know, you're brand new. With our lecture episodes, we listen to these lectures together, Bryn and I and yourself, perhaps you're at a listening party. All of us together, we're all listening to this and taking notes. And then at the end of it, we talk about everything that he said and all the things we've learned. And it's all really positive. So just wanted to tell you the run of the show just so you knew what to expect if you're a new listener because every day, So excited and honored to say that every day we get new listeners because you're spreading the word. You're doing the things that I'm asking you to do. And I deeply appreciate it so much. You have no idea. I love you guys. Thank you. Midnight on earth community listeners out there around the world, 146 countries. Thank you for helping this podcast grow. Okay, so here we go. Joseph Campbell with Bill Moyers. And this section is called Love and the Goddess. Here we go. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about love. Fine. But it's such a vast subject that if in mythology, that if I had come to you and said, let's talk about love, but where should we begin? What would your answer have been? 
I think my answer would have been the troubadours in the 12th century. Let's begin there. Why the troubadours? Well, because they're the first ones in the West that really considered love in the sense that we think of it now as a person-to-person relationship. You're talking about romantic love? Yes. It, it's the seizure that comes in uh, recognizing as, a, as where your soul's counterpart in the other person. And that's what the um, troubadours stood for. And that has become the ideal in our lives today. What had it been before that? Well, the idea of love as Eros, the god who excites you to sexual desire, this is not the, the person-to-person thing that they're falling in love in the way the troubadours understood it. I have a definition for Eros, uh, the erotic biological urge as the zeal of the organs for each other Hmm. and uh, the personal factor doesn't matter. Where did Eros come from? Well, Eros is Cupid and in India the god of love is Kama and he's no Cupid he's a big vigorous youth with a uh, bow and a quiver of arrows and the names of the arrows are such things as death-bringing agony and open up and uh, really he just drives this thing into you so that it's a it's a total physiological psychological explosion that takes place Uh, then the other love uh, the christian love of agape spiritual love love thy neighbor as thyself Again, it doesn't matter who the person is. I mean, it's your neighbor. You must have that kind of love. But the kind of seizure uh, that comes from the meeting of the eyes, as they say in the troubadour tradition, and uh, the purely personal, person-to-person thing, as far as I know, it originates as um, as an ideal to be lived for with the troubadours. You've said that what happened in the 12th and 13th centuries was one of the most important mutations of human feeling and spiritual consciousness, that a new way of experiencing love came to expression. Yes. And it was in opposition to that ecclesiastical despotism of the heart. Yes. Which required people, particularly young girls, barely out of adolescence, to marry whomever the church or their parents wanted them to marry. That's right. And what had this done to the passion of the heart? Well, the, to say a word for the other before I do this, the usual marriage in traditional cultures is uh, arranged for by the families. It's not um, a person-to-person decision at all. And this is true to this day in um, many parts of the world. This is not to say that in uh, arranged marriages of this kind, there is no love. There is a lot of love. There's family love and uh, a rich love life on that um, level. So in the Middle Ages, of course, that was the kind of marriage that was sanctified by the church. And so the idea of uh, of a real person-to-person marriage was very dangerous. Dangerous because it was heresy. It was not only heresy, it was adultery. And that was punishable by death. For instance, in the in the Tristan romance, that that's the crucial romance. Uh, of Tristan this. and Isolde. Yes, 
Isolde was engaged to marry King Mark. They had never seen each other. And uh, Tristan is sent over to fetch Isolde to Mark. And uh, Isolde's mother prepares a love potion so that uh, the two who are to be married will have real love for each other. And these two youngsters, they think the love potion is wine and they drink it and then they're overtaken with this love. But Brangain, the nurse of Isolde, realized what had happened. She went to Tristan and said, you have drunk your death. And Tristan said, if by my death you mean this agony of love, that is my life. If by my death you mean the punishment that we are to suffer, if discovered, which is namely execution, I accept that. But if by my death you mean eternal punishment in the fires of hell in which these people believed, I accept that too. That was uh, quite... That's big stuff. ...for a medieval Catholic because they believed in a literal hell. Well, that... these people did. Yes. So what's the significance of what he was saying? What he was saying is that this love is bigger even than death than pain, than anything. This is the affirmation of the pain of life in a, in a big way. And I would choose this pain for love now, even though it might mean everlasting pain and damnation in hell. That's right. And that was a marked change in how people... Well, that is an, uh, any life career that you choose in following your bliss should be chosen with that sense. Nobody can frighten me off from this thing. This is sort of the beginning of uh, the romantic idea of the Western individual taking matters into his or her own hands. Well, absolutely. I mean, you can see there are examples in Oriental uh, stories of this kind of thing, but it did not become a social system. It has now become the, the ideal, at any rate, of, of love in the Western world. Love from one's own experience. Right. It's a very mysterious thing, uh, that electric thing that happens. And then the, the agony can, that can follow, which is that which uh, the troubadours celebrate, you know, the agony of the love, the sickness that the doctors cannot cure, the wound that can be healed only by the weapon that delivered the wound. Meaning? Well, the wound is the wound of my passion and agony of love for this creature. And the only one who can heal me is the one who delivered the blow, you know. So we often hurt most of the person we love and heal the hurt by the love that hurt. <laughs> That's something like that. That's the paradox of the job. What did you mean, Joe, when you said that the triumph of Tristan's view of love and vision of love, this beginning of romantic love in the West, was libido over credo? Well, the credo, I believe, and I believe not only in the laws, but I believe that these laws were instituted by God, and uh, there's no arguing with God. I mean, these laws are just a uh, heavy weight on me, and uh, disobeying those is sin, and uh, it has to do with my eternal character. And the libido? <clears throat> libido is the impulse to life. Comes from where? comes from the, the heart. And the heart is what? 
The heart is the organ of opening up to somebody else. That's the human quality as opposed to the animal qualities, which have to do with uh, primarily with self-interest. Opening up to that which is other is uh, the opening of the heart. And that's as the troubadours saw it. It is the opening of the heart. I can certainly understand, though, why the church was threatened by this, because how can you have a church if everyone's libido is is her own God? Why not? Why can't the church handle, handle that? If you can, if you can uh, uh, sanctify a marriage that has been arranged, why can't you sanctify a marriage where two people have joined each other? So the courage to love became the courage to affirm against tradition whatever knowledge stands confirmed in one's own experience. Yeah. Why was that important in the evolution of the West? Well, it was important in that it gives the West uh, this accent, as I've been saying, on the individual. That he should have faith in his experience and not simply mouth terms that have come to him from other mouths. I think that's the great thing in the West. The validity of the individual's uh, experience of what humanity is, what life is, what values are, against the monolithic system. Was there some of this uh, in the legend of the Holy Grail? Yes. Wolfram has a very interesting statement about the origin of the Grail. He says, the Grail was brought from heaven by the neutral angels. There was the war in heaven between God and Lucifer and the angelic hosts that sided one group with Lucifer and the other with God. Pair of opposites, good and evil, God and Satan. The grail was brought down through the middle, the way of the middle, by the neutral angels. What is the grail representing then? Well, the grail becomes the, what we call it, that which is attained and realized by people who have lived their own lives. So the story, very briefly, is of this, uh, I'm, I'm giving it now as Wolfram gives it, but this is just uh, one version. Uh, the, the grail king was a lovely young man, but he had not earned that position. And uh, the grail represents the fulfillment of the highest spiritual uh, potentialities of the, of the human consciousness. And uh, he was a, a, a lovely young man. And he rode forth from his castle uh, with the war cry, Amor. And uh, as he's riding forth, uh, a uh, Muslim, a uh, pagan warrior, a Mohammedan warrior, comes out of the woods a knight, and they both level their lances at each other, they drive at each other, and the lance of the Grail King kills the Mohammedan, but the Mohammedan's lance castrates the Grail King. What that means is that the Christian separation of matter and spirit of, uh, of the dynamism of life and the spiritual, natural grace and supernatural grace has really castrated nature. And the, the European mind, the European life 
has been, as it were, uh, emasculated by this. The, the true spirituality, which would have come from this, has been killed. And then, what did the pagan represent? He was a person from the suburbs of Eden. He was regarded as a nature man. And on the head of his lance was written the word grail. That is to say, nature intends the grail. Spiritual life is the bouquet of natural life, not a supernatural thing imposed upon it. And so the impulses of nature are what give authenticity to life, not obeying rules come from a supernatural authority. That's the sense of the grail. And the grail that these romantic legends were searching for is the union, once again, of what had been divided? The peace that comes from joining? The, the grail becomes symbolic of an authentic life that has lived in terms of its own uh, volition, in terms of its own impulse system, which carries it between the pairs of opposites of good and evil, light and dark. Wolfram starts his epic with a short poem saying, every act has both good and evil results. Every act in life yields pairs of opposites in its results. The best we can do is lean toward the light. That is, they intend the light. And what the light is, is that of the harmonious relationships that come from compassion with suffering, understanding of the other person. This is what the grail's about. When we say God is love, does that have anything to do with romantic love? Does mythology ever link romantic love and God? Well, that's what it did do. Uh, love was a divine visitation, and that's why it was superior to marriage. That was the troubadour idea. If God is love, well, then love is God. Okay. There's that wonderful passage in Corinthians by Paul where he says, love beareth all things, endureth all things. Well, that's the same business. Love knows no pain. And yet, one of my favorite stories of mythology is out of Persia, where there's the idea that Lucifer was condemned to hell because he loved God so much. Yeah, that's a basic Muslim idea uh, about... Uh, Iblis, that's the Muslim name for Satan, uh, being the, God's greatest lover. Why was Satan thrown into hell? Well, the standard story is that when God created the angels, he told them to bow to none but himself. Then he created man, whom he regarded as a higher form than the angels, and he asked the angels then to serve man. And Satan would not bow to man. Now, this is interpreted in the Christian tradition, as I recall from my boyhood instruction, as being the uh, egotism of Satan. He would not bow to man. Mm -hmm. But in this view, he could not bow to man because of his love for God. He could bow only to God. And then God says, get out of my sight. Now, the worst of the pains of hell, insofar as uh, hell has been described, is the absence of the beloved, which is God. So how does Iblis sustain the situation in hell? 
by the memory of the echo of God's voice when God said, go to hell. And uh, I think that's a great sign of love, do you see? Well, it's certainly true in life that uh, the greatest hell one can know is to be separated from the one you love. Yeah. That's why I've liked the, the Persian myth for so long. Satan is God's lover. Yeah. And he has separated from God, and that's the real pain of Satan. You once took the saying of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You once took that to be the highest, the noblest, the boldest of the Christian teachings. Do you still feel that way? Well, I, I think the main teaching of Christianity is love your enemies. Hard to do. I know. Well, that's it. I mean, when, when Peter drew his sword and cut off the, uh, the servant's ear there in the Gethsemane affair, and uh, Jesus says, put up your sword, Peter, and put the ear back on, Peter has been drawing his sword ever since. And uh, one can speak about a Petrine or Christian Christianity in that sense. And uh, I would say that the, the main doctrine of Christianity is the doctrine of agape, of, of a true love for he who is your, him who is your enemy. How does one love one's enemy without condoning what the enemy does, accepting his aggression? Well, I'll tell you how to do that. Do not pluck the moat from your enemy's eye, but pluck the beam from your own, do you know? Now, I have a friend whom I met by chance, a young Buddhist monk from Tibet. You know, in 1959, the communists crashed down and bombed the uh, palace of the Dalai Lama, bombarded Lhasa and people murdered and all that kind of thing. And the escape, he escaped at the time of the Dalai Lama. And uh, those monasteries, I mean, there were monasteries with 5,000 monks, 6,000 monks, all wiped out, tortured and everything else. I haven't heard one word of incrimination of the Chinese from that young man. There is absolutely no condemnation of the Chinese here. And you hear this from the uh, Dalai Lama himself. Mm. Uh, you will not hear a word of condemnation. This recognition of the way of life through which that vitality of the spirit is moving in its own way. I mean, these men are sufferers of the terrific violence. And um, there's no animosity. I learned religion from that. Do most of the stories of mythology from whatever culture say that suffering is intrinsically a part of life and that there's no way around it? I think I'd be willing to say that they, uh, they do. I, I can't think of anything now that says uh, if you're going to live, uh, you won't suffer. It'll tell you how to understand and bear and interpret suffering. That it will do. And when the Buddha says there is escape from suffering, the escape from sorrow is nirvana. Nirvana is a psychological position where you are untouched by desire and fear.
But is that realistic? Does that happen? Yes, certainly. And your life becomes what? Harmonious, well-centered, and affirmative of, of life. Even with suffering. Exactly. There's a passage in Paul's uh, epistle to the Philippians, isn't there? Be as Christ, for Christ did not think Godhood something to be hung on to, to be clung to, but let go and came down and took life in the form of a servant, a servant even unto death. Let's say, come in and accept the suffering and, and, and uh, affirm it. So you would agree with Abelard in the 12th century who, who said that Jesus' death on the cross was not as ransom paid, as a penalty applied, but it was an act of at-one-ment, atonement, at-one with the race. That's the, the race. most sophisticated interpretation of why Christ had to be crucified. Abelard's idea was that this, oh, this is connected with the Grail King and everything else, that the coming and of Christ to be crucified and illustrating thus the suffering of life removes man's mind from commitment to the things of this world in compassion. It's in compassion with Christ that we turn to Christ. And so the injured one becomes the savior. It is the suffering that evokes the humanity of the, of the human heart. So you would agree with Havillard that Mankind yearning for God and God yearning for mankind in compassion met at that cross. Yes, and by contemplating the cross, you are contemplating the, the true mystery of, of life. And that love for this experience, no matter how horrific the experience, they, they love for it. So there's joy and pain in love. Yeah, there is. Love, you might say, is the burning point of life. And since all life is sorrowful, so is love. And, and the, the stronger the love, the, the, the more the, that pain. But love bears all things. Love itself is a pain, you might say, that uh, is the pain of being truly alive. Once upon a time, so long ago it no longer matters how long ago, the feminine figure of the goddess ruled mythology as the equal of the male. The Greeks even gave her top billing. From chaos, they said, from nothing, came Mother Earth, known as Gaia, and Sky, Uranus. They bedded, and from their coupling came six twins known as the Titans, and three giants known as Cyclopes, each with fifty heads and one hundred arms. Uranus was disgusted and forced him to return to their mother's womb, whereupon an indignant Gaia set out to make him pay for the insult. When Uranus came to their bedroom for his usual favors, she recruited one of their sons to make a sickle, and together they took from Uranus what he was most unwilling to give up and dropped the bloody thing in the sea. The lesson was not lost on the Greeks. It isn't nice to fool with Mother Nature. Joseph Campbell liked that story and told it to me when we were talking one day about how patriarchal authority finally drove the goddess from the pantheon of imagination. Somehow, the old guys figured that if they wanted to control the world, 
They had to change the metaphors, and the goddess had to go. She remained the symbol of fertility, crucial to humanity's survival, but no equal, except rarely in the exercise of power. The repercussions have played out down the centuries and are still with us. We return now to our conversation. The Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father, which art in heaven. Yeah. Could it have begun, Our Mother? This is a metaphorical image. This is a symbolic image. And to make the point that it's not your father, your physical father, we have our father who art in heaven. But heaven again is a symbolic idea. Where it would heaven be? It is no place. All of the references of religious and mythological images are to planes of consciousness or fields of experience potential in the human spirit. And these are to evoke uh, attitudes and experiences that are appropriate to a meditation on the mystery of the source of your own being, I would say. So there have been systems of religion where the mother is the prime parent, the source, and she's really a more um, immediate parent than the father because one is born from the mother yeah. and then the first experience of any infant is the mother so that the image of woman is the image of the world. You might say that mythology is simply a translation of the world into a mother image. We talk of mother earth and so forth. But what happened along the way, Joe, to this reverence that in primitive societies was directed toward the goddess figure, the great goddess, the Mother Earth. What happened to that? That comes in primarily with agriculture and the agricultural societies. Fertility and all of that? It has to do with the Earth. The, the human woman does give birth as the Earth gives birth to the, uh, the plants. She gives nourishment as the plants do. So woman magic and earth magic are the same. They are related. And uh, the personification then of this energy which gives birth to forms and nourishes forms is properly female. And so it is in the agricultural world of ancient uh, Mesopotamia, the Egyptian Nile, but also in the earlier planting culture systems that the, uh, the goddess is the mythic form that is dominant. Because of this obvious perception of creation issue. That's right. Fertility. And when you have a goddess as the creator, it's her own very body that is the universe. She is identical with the universe. And in Egypt, uh, you have the, the mother heavens, Newt, the goddess Newt, who's represented as the whole heavenly sphere. I was really taken when we went to Egypt upon first seeing the figure of Newt in the ceiling of one of those temples. Yes, I know the temple. It's overwhelming. Yes. There's one scene of her swallowing the sun. 
The idea is that uh, she swallows the sun in the west and gives birth to the sun in the east, and it passes through her body at night. And, uh, and so she is the heavens. So it would be natural for people trying to explain the wonders of the universe to look to the female figure as the explanation for what they saw in their own lives. Not only that, but then when you move to a philosophical point of view, the female represents what uh, in the Kantian terminology we call the forms of sensibility. The female represents time and space itself. She is time and space. And the mystery beyond her is beyond pairs of opposites. So it isn't male and it isn't female. It neither is nor isn't. But everything is within her so that the gods are her children. Everything you can think of, everything you can see is the uh, production of the goddess. Oh, this is a wonderful story. The Vedic gods are together and they see a strange sort of amorphous thing down the way, like a kind of smoky fog. And they say, what's that? I don't know what it is. And uh, Agni, the god of fire, says, uh, I'll go find out who that is. So he goes up to this smoky thing and he says, who are you? And from the smoky thing, the voice says, who are you? And he says, I'm Agni, I'm the Lord of Fire, I can burn anything. And out of the fog there comes a piece of straw, it falls on the ground. It says, let's see you burn that. He can't burn it. He goes back, he says, this is strange. Well, Vayu, the Lord of Wind says, I'll try. So he goes, and the same thing, I can blow anything around. Throws it down, let's see you blow that, but he can't, he goes back. Then a woman arrives, a beautiful, mysterious, mystic woman. And she instructs the gods and tells them who that is. That is the ultimate mystery of being from which you, boys, have received your strength. And he can turn it on or off for you, you know. And there she comes as the one who illuminates the gods themselves concerning the ultimate ground of their own being. It's the female wisdom. It's the female as the giver of forms. Uh, she is the one who gave the forms, and she knows where they came from. I wonder what it would have meant to us if somewhere along the way we had begun the prayer, our mother, instead of our father. What psychological difference would it have made? Well, it makes a psychological difference in the, in the character of the cultures. You have the basic birth of civilization in the Near East with the great river valleys then as the, the main source areas, the Nile, the Tigris-Euphrates, and then over in India, the Indus Valley and later the Ganges. This is the world of the goddess. All these rivers have goddess names, finally. Then there come the invasions. Uh, these fighting people are herding people. The Semites are herders of goats and sheep, and the Indo-Europeans of cattle. They were formerly the hunters. They translate a hunting mythology into a herding mythology, but it's animal-oriented. And when you have hunters, you have killers, 
Uh, and when you have herders, you have killers because they're always in movement, nomadic, coming into conflict with other people, and they have to conquer the area they move into. This comes into the Near East, and this brings in the warrior gods, like Zeus, like Yahweh. The sword and death instead of fertility. Right, particularly the Hebrews. They really wipe out the goddess. Uh, the term for the goddess, the Canaanite goddess that's used in the uh, Old Testament is the abomination. And uh, so many of the Hebrew kings are condemned in the uh, Old Testament for having worshipped on the mountaintops. Mm -hmm. That's the goddess. And uh, there was a very strong accent against the goddess in the Hebrew, which you do not find in the Indo-European. There you have Zeus marrying the goddess, yeah. and, and then the two play together. I think it's an extreme case that we have in the Bible. And our own Western uh, subjugation of the female is really, I think, a function of, of biblical thinking. Because when you substitute the the male for the female, you get a different psychology, a different cultural well, bias. Particularly if you cut the female out and, and don't have any, I mean, if, if the male is on top like this mm. uh, and the female is the subordinate all the way, you have a totally different system from that when the two are facing each other. And it's permissible in your culture to do what your gods do, so you just... Well, that's exactly it. So I would see uh, three uh, situations here. One, the early one of the sheer goddess when the male is hardly a, a significant uh, divinity. You see, she is the total thing. And then this other one of the Hebrew of the goddess, the male, the total thing. In fact, he takes over her role. Uh, and, and finally, then, the, the classical one where the two are in interaction. There are women today who say that the spirit of the goddess has been in exile for 5,000 years since the events well, that not, you... Well, you can't put it that far back, 5,000 years. Uh, she was a very potent figure in Hellenistic times in the Mediterranean. And uh, <clears throat> she came back. Uh, with the Virgin in the Roman Catholic tradition. I mean, you don't have a tradition with the goddess celebrated any more beautifully and marvelously than in the 12th and 13th century French cathedrals, every one of which is called Notre Dame. What about the virgin birth? Suddenly the goddess reappears in the form of the chaste and pure vessel chosen for God's action. Well, in the history of Western religions, this is an extremely interesting development. The virgin birth comes in by way of the Greek tradition. When you read your four Gospels, the only one with the virgin birth in it is the Gospel according to Luke, and Luke was a Greek. And there was in the Greek tradition uh, images, legends, myths of virgin births? All of them. I mean, the leader and the swan and Persephone and the serpent and this one and that one and the other one. The virgin birth is, uh, is represented throughout. This was not a new idea then in Bethlehem. And no. Uh, what is the meaning of the virgin birth? In India, there is this uh, 
the system of the Kundalini, as it's called, the idea of the, uh, the centers, psychological centers up the spine. And they represent the psychological planes of concern and consciousness and action. The first is at the rectum, and this is that of alimentation. The serpent represents this, you know, a traveling esophagus going along, just eating, 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 eating. And all of us, are pro we wouldn't be here if we weren't eating. And then the second, the second center is at the sex organ center, and that's the urge to procreation. The third center is called, is at the navel. Uh, and uh, this is where you eat and want to consume. And uh, it's not the alimentary eating, it's the mastering and smashing and uh, trashing of others. Do you see? This is the aggressive mood. Now, the first is uh, uh, an animal instinct. The second is an animal instinct. The third is an animal instinct, and these three centers are located in the in the pelvic basin. Do you see? Mm -hmm. The next one is at the level of the heart, and this is the opening of compassion, and there you move out of the field of animal action into a field that is properly human and spiritual. Now, in each of these centers, there is a symbolic form at the base the first one, there is the form of the lingam and yoni, the male and female organs in conjunction. At the heart chakra, there is again the male and female organs in conjunction, but in gold. This is the virgin birth. It's the birth of spiritual man out of the animal man. Do you understand? And it happens when you are awakened at the level of the heart, to compassion and suffering with the other person. That's the beginning of humanity. And the meditations of religion properly are on that level, the heart level. You say it's the beginning of humanity, but in, in these stories, that's the moment when gods are born, the virgin birth. It's a god who emerges from that yeah. chemistry. And you know who that god is? It's you. All of these symbols in mythology refer to you. You can get stuck out there and think it's all out there. And so you're thinking of Jesus and, and uh, all the sentiments about how he suffered and all. What that suffering is, is what ought to be going on in you. Have you been reborn? Have you died to your animal nature and come to life as a, as a human uh, incarnation? Why is it significant that this is of a virgin? Well, it is that uh, the begetter is the spirit. It is a spiritual birth. The virgin conceived of the word, but through the ear. The word came like a shaft of light. Yes. And now the Buddha was born from his mother's side at the level of the heart chakra. That's a symbolic birth. He wasn't born uh, from his mother's side, but symbolically he was. But the Christ came the way you and I come. Yes, but of a virgin. Which is a power greater than... And then, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, her virginity was restored. So 
nothing happened physically, you might say. It's not a physical birth. It's symbolic of a spiritual transformation. A train, that's what the virgin birth's about. And so deities are born that way who represent beings who act in terms of compassion and not in terms of the lower three centers. If you go back into antiquity, do you find images of the Madonna as the mother of the savior child? Well, what you have as the model for the Madonna actually is Isis with her child Horus at her breast. This was the actual model for the Madonna symbol. Isis? Tell me that story. This is a, a prime myth in, the, uh, in, the, in this um, period of the goddess as the redeemer, the one who goes in quest of the lost spouse or lover and uh, through her loyalty and uh, descent into the realm of death recovers him. Isis and her husband Osiris were twins who were born of the goddess Nut. And uh, their younger uh, relatives were Set and Nephthys, who were also twins born from Nut. Set planned to kill his brother Osiris. And he took Osiris's measurements secretly and had a wonderful sarcophagus built that would exactly fit Osiris. So there was a hilarious party in progress one time among the gods, and Set trots in this sarcophagus, and he says, anyone whom this perfectly fits uh, can have it as his sarcophagus. And everybody at the party tried, and when Osiris got in, of course, he perfectly fit. Just at that time, 72 accomplices come rushing out and they clap the lid on and strap it together and throw it in the Nile. Now, this is the death of the God. Whenever you have a death of an incarnation, a God like this, you're going to have a resurrection. You can wait for that. So he goes floating down the Nile and um, is washed ashore in Syria. And a beautiful tree grows up and incorporates the sarcophagus in its own trunk. So this is this wonderful tree with glorious aroma. And the uh, local king has just had a son born to him. And he is also at the same time going to build a palace. The aroma of this tree is so wonderful. He cuts it down and brings it in to be a central pillar in the main room of the palace. Poor little Isis, whose husband has been thrown into the Nile, starts this wonderful quest for Osiris. So she comes to the place where the palace is and uh, learns of the uh, wonderful aroma, and she suspects this is Osiris, and uh, she gets a job as nurse to the just-born little child. Well, she lets the child nurse from her finger, and she loves the little child, and she decides to give it immortality. So she does this by placing him in the um, fireplace, in the fire, to burn away gradually his uh, mortal body 
But at being a goddess, she could keep that from killing him, do you understand? And when that would happen, she would convert herself into a swallow and fly mournfully around the pillar where her husband is. Well, one evening, the child's mother came into this room while this scene was in progress, saw her child in the fireplace, let out a scream, and uh, that broke the spell, and they had to rescue the child uh, from incineration. Meanwhile, the swallow had turned into this gorgeous nurse, Isis, and the uh, nurse gave an explanation of the situation, and she said, um, by the way, uh, it's my husband that's in that, that pillar there, and I'd be grateful if you could uh, just let me take it home. So the king came in and he said, certainly. So he removes the pillar, uh, gives it to Isis, and is put on a barge. So on the way back to the Nile, she removes the lid, the cover of the sarcophagus, and lies on top of her dead spouse and conceives of her dead spouse. This is an image that occurs in Egyptian art all the time. Out of death comes life and all of this kind of business. And when they land, she, in the papyrus swamp, gives birth to her child Horus with the dead Osiris beside her. This is the motif for the, the Madonna, actually. It becomes the Madonna. In Egyptian uh, symbology, Isis represents the throne. The pharaoh sits on the throne of Isis mm. as the child sits on the mother lap. And when you look in the Cathedral of Chartres in the West Portal, you will see the Madonna as the throne with the little child Jesus as the world emperor on her lap. That is the same image that's come over. And you say the Christian fathers took this image? Definitely, and, and they really say so. Uh, you read the second uh, letter of Peter, and he says, those forms which were merely mythological forms in the past are now incarnate and actual in our Savior. They, they were, it was a mythology of the Savior, the dead and resurrected God. And it's associated with the moon, which dies and is resurrected every, every month. And you have the three nights dark, and you have Christ three nights in the tomb, and three days in the tomb, and all this kind of thing. It's an intentional uh, saying, that which was merely talked about is now fact. And no one knows what the date of Christmas ought to be. But it's put on the date of the summer, of the winter solstice, when the nights begin to be shorter and the days longer, the birth of light. And so there is a idea of uh, death to the past and birth to the future in our lives and in our thinking all the time. Death to the animal nature, birth to the spiritual, and these symbols are talking about it one way or another. So when the council... And the goddess is the one who brings it about. The second birth is through the second mother. Notre Dame de Paris, Notre Dame de Chartres, our mother church. We are reborn by entering and leaving a church. And it doesn't mean physically, it means... Spiritually. That there's a power that's unique to the feminine principle. 
It can be put that way. You can. It's not necessarily unique to her. You can have a rebirth through the through the male also. But using this system of symbols, right. uh, the woman becomes the regenerator. There's that wonderful saying uh, in the New Testament of Jesus: "In Jesus, there is no male or female. In in the ultimate sense of things, there is neither." That's, that would have to be. I mean, if Jesus represents the the uh, source of our being. We are all, as it were, thoughts in the mind of Jesus. He is the word that has become flesh in us, too. You and I would possess characteristics that are both male and female. Well, actually, the body does. But sometime in the fetal period, the, it becomes apparent that this is going to be male and this is going to be female. Meanwhile, it's a kind of neutral body with the potentialities for either inflection. So all through life, we are honoring right. or suppressing yeah. one or the other. And in that yin-yang figure from uh, China, you know, in the dark fish or whatever you want to call it, there's a light spot. And in the light one, there's a dark spot. That's how they can relate. You couldn't relate at all to something that uh, of which you did not participate, into which you did not participate at all. That's why the idea of God as the absolute other is a, a, a ridiculous idea. There could be no relationship to that which is absolute other. Uh, the question arises, in discussing the male-female principle, the virgin birth, the spiritual power that gives us the second birth. The wise people of all time have said that we can live the good life if we learn, in fact, to live spiritually. But how does one learn to live spiritually when one is of the flesh? Remember Paul said the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. How do we learn to live spiritually? Well, that was the in ancient times and in primitive times, uh, the business of the teacher. He was to give you the clues to a spiritual life. That was what the priest was for. Also, that was what the ritual was for. A ritual can be defined as an enactment of a myth. By participating in a, in a good, sound ritual, you are actually experiencing a mythological uh, life. And uh, it's out of that that one can learn to live spiritually. These stories of mythology actually point the way to the spiritual life. Yes, you've got to have a clue. Uh, you've got to have a road map of some kind. And these are all around us. They're, they're, they're here. And the road map to which the goddess stories are, are pointing is the map of of elevating the spiritual to an equality with the physical so that you live in union with those two. Yes, there you, you come to the real sanctity of the earth itself because that is the body of the goddess. When Yahweh creates, he creates of the earth and breathes his life into it. He's not there. She's there. Your body is her body. And there's that kind of identity. Well, that's why I'm not so sure that the future of the race and the salvation of the journey is in space. I think it is well right here on Earth, in the body, in the womb of all of our being. 
Well, it certainly is. I mean, when you go out into space, what you're carrying is your body. And if that hasn't been transformed, space won't transform it for you. But thinking about space may help you to realize something. You certainly thought about space in this wonderful passage. You're describing a page out of the National Geographic Atlas of the World, but you oh, read yeah. this and something happened to you. What these pages opened to me was the vision of a universe of unimaginable magnitude and inconceivable violence. Billions upon billions, literally, of roaring thermonuclear furnaces scattering from each other, each thermonuclear furnace being a star and our sun among them, many of them actually blowing themselves to pieces, littering the outermost reaches of space with dust and gas, out of which new stars with circling planets are being born right now. And then from still more remote distances beyond all these, there come murmurs, microwaves, which are echoes of the greatest cataclysmic explosion of all, namely the Big Bang of creation, which according to recent reckonings, must have occurred some 18 billion years ago. That's where we are, kiddo. And uh, to realize that, you realize how really important you are, you know. One little micro bit in this great magnitude. And then out of that must come the experience that you and that are in some sense one, and uh, you partake of all of that. And it begins here. It begins here. Okay, so that was Love and the Goddess, and now we're just going to go right into Masks of Eternity. So here we go. Is there something in common in every culture that creates this need for God? Well, I think uh, anyone who has an experience of mystery at all knows that there is a, a dimension, let's say, uh, of the universe that is not that which is available to his senses. There's a wonderful saying in one of the Upanishads, uh, when uh, for a sunset or a mountain and the beauty of this or of that, you pause and say, ah, that is participation in divinity. And I think that's what it is. It's the realization of wonder and also, the experience of tremendous power, which people, of course, living in the world of nature, are experiencing all the time. You know there's something there that's much bigger than the human dimension. And our way of thinking in the West largely is that God is the source of the energy. The way in most Oriental thinking, and I think in most what we call primitive thinking also is, the God is a manifestation of the energy, not its source. The God is the vehicle of the energy. And uh, the level of energy that is involved or represented determines the character of the God. There are gods of violence. There are gods of compassion. There are gods that unite the two. There are gods that are the protectors of kings in their war campaigns. These are uh, personifications of the energy that's in play and what the source of the energy is. What's the source of the energy of these lights around us? I mean, this is a total mystery. Doesn't this make a faith an anarchy, 
a sort of continuing war among principalities? As life is, yes. I mean, even in your mind, when, when it comes to do anything, there will be a war, a, a decision as to priorities, what you're to do now. Or in, in relationship to other people, there will be four or five possibilities of my way of action. And the notion of divinity or divine life in my mind would be what would determine my decision. And if it were rather crude, it would be a rather crude decision. But is divinity just what we think? Yes. What does that do to faith? Well, it's a tough one about faith. You are a man of faith. I'm you're, not, a, you're a man of wonder. And yeah, I'm, I, I don't have to have faith. I have experience. What kind of experience? Well, I have experience of the wonder of the life. I have experience of love. I have experience of hatred and malice. I like to punch the guy's jaw. Uh, and I admit this. But those are different divinities. I mean, from the point of view of a, of a, a symbolic imaging, those are different images operating in me. For instance, when I was a little boy and was being brought up a Roman Catholic, I was told I had a guardian angel on my right side and a tempting devil on my left. And uh, when it came to making a decision of what I would do, the decision would depend on which one had most influence on me. And I must say that in my boyhood, and I think also in the people who were teaching me, they actually concretized those thoughts. I did what? I, it was an angel. That angel is a fact, and the devil is a fact. Do you see? Otherwise, one thinks of them as metaphors for the energies that are afflicting and guiding you. And those energies come from? From your own life. The and energy of your own body, the different organs in your body, including your head, are the conflict systems. And your life comes from where? Yeah, there you are. From the ultimate energy that's the life of the universe. And then you say, well, somebody has to generate that. Why do you have to say that? Why can't it be impersonal? That would be Brahman. That would be the transcendent mystery that can, you can also personify. Can men and women live with an impersonality? Yes. They do all over the place. Just go east of Suez. In the East, the gods are much more elemental. Elemental? Elemental. Less human and yeah. more like the powers of nature. I see a deity as representing an energy system. And part of the energy system is the human energy systems of love and malice, hate, benevolence, compassion. And in Oriental thinking, the God is the vehicle of the energy, not its source. Well, of course, the heart of the Christian faith is that these elemental forces you're talking about embodied themselves in a human being and recon reconciling mankind to God. Yes, and the a basic Buddhist idea is that that is true of you as well. And that what Jesus was was a person who realized that in himself and lived out of the Christhood of his nature.
What do you think about Jesus? We just don't know Jesus. All we know are four contradictory texts that tell us what he did. Written many years after he lived. But I think we know what Jesus said. I think the, the sayings of Jesus are, are probably pretty close. But when you read the Thomas Gospel, the Gospel according to Thomas, which was dug up there in that uh, with those other uh, Gnostic texts, it has all the flavor of one of the uh, synoptics, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, except that it doesn't say quite the same thing. Uh, there's one wonderful passage. It's the last one in the, in the Gospel, actually. Uh, when will the kingdom come? Now, in Mark 13, I think it is, we hear that the end of the world is going to come. That's to say, a mythological image, that's the end of the world, is taken as a reference to an actual physical historical fact to be. When you read the Thomas Gospel, Jesus says, the kingdom of the Father will not come by expectation. The kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth, and men do not see it. So I look at you now in that sense, and the radiance of the presence of the divine is known to me through you. Through me? You, sure. A journalist? Jesus also says in this text, he who drinks from my mouth will become as I am, and I shall be he. He's talking from the point of view of that being of beings, which we call the Christ, who is the being of all of us. And anyone who lives in relation to that is as Christ. And anyone who incarnates, or rather brings into his life the message of the word, is equivalent to Jesus. That's the sense there. That's so that's what you mean when you say, I am radiating God to you. You are. Yes. And you to me. And I'm speaking this seriously. No, no, I take yes. it seriously. I, I happen to believe the same as you without being able to articulate it as you do. I do sense that there is divinity. The divinity is in the other. So you are the vehicle. You are, as it were, uh, radiant of the spirit. And th that's why not recognize it. I'll tell you what the most gripping scripture in the Christian New Testament is for me. It says, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I believe in what? I believe in this ultimate reality and that I can experience it, that I do experience it, but I don't have answers to my questions. I believe in the question, is there a God? I had a very amusing experience, which it might be well uh, worth telling. Um, I was in the New York Athletic Club swimming pool. And you know, you don't wear your collar this way or that way when you're in a swimming pool. And uh, I was introduced to a priest. This is Father so-and-so. This is uh, Joseph Campbell. I'm a professor. He's a professor at uh, one of our Catholic universities. So after I'd had my swim, I, I came and sat down beside in what we call, you know, the horizontal athlete situation. And the priest is beside me. <laughs> and he said, uh, Mr. Campbell, are you a priest? I said, no, father. He said, uh, are you a Catholic? 
I said, I was, Father. He said, and now he had the sense to ask it this way, do you believe in a personal God? I said, no, Father. And he said, well, I suppose there is no way to prove by logic the existence of a personal God. And I said, if there were, Father, what would be the value of faith? Well, Mr. Campbell, it's nice to have met you, and he was off. I really felt I'd done a jujitsu trick. <laughs> but um, th that was a very illuminating conversation to me. The, uh, the fact that uh, he asked, do you believe in a personal God? Mm. That meant that he also recognized the possibility of the Brahman, of the transcendent energy. Well, then what, what is religion? Well, the word religion means religio, linking back, linking back the phenomenal person to a source. If we say it is the one life in both of us, then my separate life has been linked to the one life, religio, linked back. And this, and this becomes symbolized in the images of religion, which represent uh, that connecting link. Your friend Jung, the great psychologist, says that the most powerful religious symbol is the circle. He says the circle is one of the great primordial images of mankind, that in considering the symbol of the circle, we are analyzing the self. And I find you in your own work throughout the course of your life coming across the circle, whether it's in the magical designs the world over, whether it's in the architecture, both ancient and modern, whether it's in the dome-shaped temples of India or the calendar stones of the Aztecs or the ancient Chinese bronze shields or the visions of the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, whom you talk about, the wheel in the sky. You keep coming across this image. Yeah, it's an ever-present thing. It's the center from which you've come back to which you go. I remember reading in a, a book about the American Indians called The Indian Book by Natalie Curtis, which was published around 1904, her conversation with uh, a chief. Uh, uh, I think he was a chief of the Pawnee tribe. And uh, among the things he said was, when we pitch camp, we pitch a camp in a circle. When we look at the horizon, the horizon is in a circle. When the eagle builds a nest, the nest is in a circle. And then you read in Plato somewhere, the soul is a circle. I suppose the circle represents a totality. Within the circle is one thing. It is encircled. It's enframed. That would be the spatial aspect. But the temporal aspect of the circle is you leave, go somewhere, and come back. The alpha and omega. God is the alpha and omega, the source and the end. Somehow the circle suggests immediately a completed totality, whether in time or in space. No beginning, no end. Well, round and round and round. Uh, the year. Well, this is uh, November again, you know, and we're about to have Thanksgiving again, and we're about to have Christmas again. 
And then not only the year, but the month, the moon cycle, and the day the cycle. And uh, this is, uh, we're reminded of this when we look on our watch and see the cycle of time is the same hour, the same hour, but another day and all that sort of thing. Why do you suppose the circle became so universally symbolic? Well, because it's experienced all the time. Uh, you experience it in the day and year, just as we've said, and you experience it in leaving home, going on your adventure, hunting or whatever it may be, and coming back to home. And uh, then there's a deeper one also, that mystery of the womb and the tomb. When people are buried, it's for rebirth. I mean, that's the origin of the burial idea. You put back into the womb of Mother Earth for rebirth. And Jung uh, kept returning to that theme of the circle as being the sort of universal symbol. Well, Jung used it as a uh, pedagogical device, actually, uh, what the, he called the mandala. This was a, actually a Hindu term for a sacred circle. Here is uh, one of the pictures that's a very elaborate mandala. Uh, you have the, uh, the deity, the center, with the power source, the illumination source. And these are the manifestations or aspects of its radiance. But in working out a mandala for oneself, what one does is draw a circle and then think of the different impulse systems in your life the different value systems in your life and try then to compose them and find what a center is. It's a kind of discipline for pulling all those scattered aspects of your life together, finding a center and ordering yourself to it. So you're trying to coordinate your circle with the universal circle. To be at the center. At the center. The Navajo have that wonderful image of what they call the pollen path. And when you realize what pollen is, it's the life source. And it's a single, single path at the center. And then they will say, you know, beauty before me, beauty behind me, beauty to the right of me, beauty to the left of me, beauty above me, beauty below me. I'm on the pollen path. So the little cosmos of one's own life and the macrocosm of the world's life are in some way to be coordinated. Well, for instance, among the, the Navajo Indians, healing ceremonies were uh, conducted by way of sand paintings, which are mostly mandalas, on the ground, and then the person who is to be treated uh, moves into the mandala. There will be a mythological uh, context that he will be identifying with, and he identifies himself with that power. And this uh, idea of sand painting with mandalas and used for meditation purposes appears also in Tibet, in the great um, tantric monasteries outside of Lhasa, for instance, Gyutdo, they practiced uh, sand painting, cosmic images and so forth, indicating the forces of the, the spiritual powers that operate in our lives. Now, what do you make of that, that in two uh, very different cultures, the same imagery 
emerges? Yes. Well, there are only two ways to explain it. And one is by diffusion, that an influence came from there to here. And the other is by separate development. And when you have the idea of separate development, this speaks for certain powers in the psyche, which are common to all mankind. Otherwise, you couldn't have, and, and to the detail the correspondences can be identified. It, it's astonishing when one studies these things in depth, uh, the, the degree to which the agreements go between totally separated cultures. Which says something about the commonality of the species, doesn't it? Well, yes. That was uh, Carl Jung's idea, which he calls the uh, uh, archetypes, archetypes of the collective unconscious. What do you mean by archetype? An archetype is, is a, a constant form, a, a, a basic fundamental form, which appears uh, in the works of um, that person over there and this person over here without uh, connection. And they are expressions of the structure of the uh, human psyche. So if you find in a variety of cultures, uh, each one telling the story of creation or the story of a virgin birth or the story of a savior who comes and dies and is resurrected, you're saying something about what is inside us and the need to understand. That's right. Um, one can say that the images of myth are um, reflections of uh, spiritual and depth potentialities of every one of us. And that through contemplating those, uh, we evoke those powers in our own lives to operate through ourselves. There was a, a very important anthropologist, he's the one with whom my works begin, you might say, my studies, uh, Bastian in Germany, end of the last century and first part of this. He was a world traveler and recognized very soon that there were certain motifs that appeared in all of the religions and all the mythologies of the world. Such an idea, for example, as a spiritual power. Uh, that's, a, that's an archetypal image that appears everywhere. And he called these elementary ideas. But they appear in very different forms in different provinces and at different times. And those different forms or costumes he called ethnic or folk ideas. But within the ethnic idea is the elementary idea. And it is those elementary ideas that Carl Jung then began studying and called archetypes of the unconscious. When you say elementary idea, they seem to come from up here. When you say archetypes of the unconscious, they come from up here. And they appear in our dreams as well as in the myths. So when one scripture talks about being made in his image, in God's image, it's being, it's being created with certain qualities that every human being possesses, no matter what that person's religion or culture or geography or, or heritage. God would be the ultimate elementary idea of man. The primal need. And we are all made in the image of God, okay? So that is the ultimate elementary idea or archetype of man. I feel stronger in my own faith knowing that others had the same yearnings and were seeking for the same images to try to express an experience that couldn't be costumed in 
in, in ordinary human language. I mean, That's right. I feel much more kinship with all those who follow other ways because it's this is why clowns are good clown religions because they showed that the image is not a fact but it's it's a, it's a reflex of some kind so is does this help explain the trickster gods that show up from it's time very to... much that yes some of the best trickster stories are associated with our american indian tales now these figures are clown-like figures and yet they are the creator god at the same time very often. And uh, this makes the point, I am not the ultimate image, I am transparent to something through me, through my funny form and mocking it and uh, turning it into a grotesque uh, action. Uh, you, you really get the sense which if I had been a big sober presence, you'd get stuck with the image. There's a wonderful story in some African uh, tradition of the God who's walking down the road and the God has on a hat that is colored red on one side and blue on the other side. So when the people, the farmers in the field go into the village in the evening, they said, did you see that fellow, that God with the blue hat? And the others said, no, no, he had a red hat on and they get into a fight. He even makes it worse by first walking uh, along this direction, then turning around, turning his hat around so that they, again, it'll be red and black or whatever it is. Uh, and then when uh, these two chaps fight and are brought before the ch king or chief for judgment, this uh, fellow appears and he, he says, it's my fault, I did it. Spreading strife is my greatest joy. <laughs> and there's a truth in that. There sure is, yes. Which is? No matter what system of thought you have, it can possibly include boundless life. And uh, when you think everything's just that way, it comes in and it all blows and you get the becoming thing again. Now, Jung has a wonderful saying somewhere. Religion is a defense against a religious experience. Well, you have to explain that. Well, that means it has reduced the whole thing to concepts and ideas. And having the concept and idea short circuits the transcendent experience, the, the experience of, of deep mystery is what uh, one has to regard as the, the ultimate religious experience. Well, there are many Christians who believe that to, to, to find out who Jesus is, you have to go past the Christian faith, past the Christian doctrine, past the Christian church. And I know that's heresy to a lot of people. But well, you have to go past the image of Jesus. The, the image of God becomes the final obstruction. Your God is your ultimate barrier. This is, is basic Hinduism, basic Buddhism. Um, you know, the, the idea of the ascent of the spirit through the centers, the chakras as they're called, or lotuses, uh, the different centers of experience, uh, the animal experiences of, of uh, hunger and greed or just the zeal of reproduction or the physical mastery of one kind or another. These are all stages of, of power. But then when the center of the heart is reached and the, the sense of compassion on another person, mercy and participation and I and you are in some sense of the same being. This is what marriage is based on, mm -hmm. 
uh, there's a whole new stage of, of life experience opens up with the opening of the heart. And this is what's called the virgin birth, actually the birth of a spiritual life in what formerly was simply a human animal, living for the animal aims of uh, health, progeny, wealth, and a little fun. Uh, but uh, now you come to something else, to participate in this sense of accord with another, or accord with some principle that uh, has lodged in your mind as a, as a good to be uh, identified with, uh, then a whole new life comes. And this is, in Oriental thinking, the awakening of the religious experience. And then uh, this can go on even to the quest for the experience of the ultimate mystery. Now, this ultimate mystery can be experienced in two senses. One, without form, and the other with form. And in this, in this oriental thinking, you experience God with form here. This is heaven. That's the identification with your own being because that which God refers to is the ultimate mystery of being, which is the mystery of your being as well as of the world. So it's, this is it. How do you explain what the psychologist Maslow calls peak experiences and what your friend James Joyce called epiphanies? I love that word, epiphanies. Oh, well, they're not quite the same. But, I know. Um, the peak experience uh, it refers to actual uh, moments of your life when you, you feel that uh, this has told you something. Something has come through in your experience of your relationship to the harmony of being. Uh, it can come, I, my peak experiences, I mean, the ones that I knew were peak experiences after I had them all came in athletics. Which was the Everest of your experience. Yeah. Well, which, which one was it? Was it when you were running at Columbia? Yes, of course. And uh, I ran a couple of races that were just beautiful. And uh, the, the whole race, I knew I was going to win. And there was no reason for me to know I was going to win because I was touched off anchor in a relay with the first man 30 yards ahead of me. And uh, I just knew, knew it was the peak experience. Nobody could beat me today. That, that's a kind of being in full form and, uh, and really doing it. I don't think I've ever done anything in my life as competently as I ran those two races. And um, those, consequently, were the experience of really being at my full and doing perfect job. I don't think I've ever had anything like that quite, that I really came up to anything quite that way. Do you think you, Joseph Campbell, have to, it has to be physical? No, but it can be a peak experience. There are other kinds of peak experiences which I know were superior to, to those, but those are the ones that when I read Maslow and read the peak experience, I just know that those were peak experiences. What about James Dorsey's epiphanies? Now, that's another thing. This has to do with the aesthetic experience. Um, Joyce's uh, formula for the aesthetic experience is that it... Uh, it does not move you to want to possess the object. That he calls pornography. Mm. Nor does it move you to criticize and reject the object. That he calls didactic, social criticism in art, and all that kind of thing. 
it is beholding the object. And he says you put a frame around it and see it as one thing. And then seeing it as one thing, uh, you become aware of the relationship of part to part, the part to the whole, and the whole to the parts. This is the essential aesthetic factor, rhythm. The rhythm, the rhythmic relationships. And when a fortunate rhythm has been struck by the artist, there is a radiance. That's the epiphany. And that is what would be the Christ coming through. Do you understand what I'm saying? The, the face of the saint beholding God. And it doesn't matter who it is. I mean, you could take someone who you would think of as being a, a monster. That is an ethical judgment on the life. And this is transcendent of ethics, no didactic. See, that's where I would disagree with you, because it seems to me in order to experience the epiphany, that which you behold but do not want to possess must be beautiful in some way. And a moment ago when you talked about your peak experience, running, you said it was beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful is an aesthetic word. That's right. And how can you behold a monster? I tell you, there's another emotion associated with art, which is not of the beautiful, but of the sublime. And uh, what we call monsters can be seen as sublime. And they represent powers too great for the mere forms of life to survive. Prodigious expanse of space is sublime. Mm -hmm. This is the thing that the Buddhists know how to achieve in their, in their uh, temples. Particularly when I was in uh, Kyoto, I was there for seven glorious months. In Japan. Yeah, visiting some of the temple gardens. They are so designed that you, you're experiencing something here and then you break past the screen and a whole new horizon opens out. And somehow with the diminishment of your own ego, the consciousness expands. This is the experience of the sublime. Another experience of the sublime is not of tremendous space, but of tremendous energy and power. And uh, I have known a couple of people who were in Central Europe during the saturation bombings that were conducted over those cities. And um, there is the, uh, you just, have the experience of the sublime there. I once interviewed a veteran of the Second World War, and I was talking to him about his experience at the Battle of the Bulge with the assault of the Germans about to succeed. And yeah. I said, well, as you look back on it, what was it? And he said, it was sublime. And so the monster comes through there. What do you mean by monster? Well, by a monster, I mean someone who breaks all of your standards for harmony and for ethical conduct. Is there a story in mythology that illustrates the, the sublime in the monster? Well, the god of the end of the world, Vishnu at the end of the world is a monster. I mean, uh, good night, he's, he's destroying the world, first with, with fire, and then with the torrential flood that drowns out the fire and everything else, and nothing's left but ash, the whole universe has been wiped out, that's God. Well, the Christian millennialists talk of the rapture. Well, read chapter 13 in Mark. Which says? That's the end of the world. You see, these are experiences that go past ethical judgment. The ethics is wiped out. 
our religions with the accent on the human, as I mentioned a little while ago, also stress the ethical. God is good. God is horrific. The end of the world. Um, there's a, an Arab saying that I read somewhere in the uh, Arabian Nights of the angel of death. When the angel of death comes, is terrible. When he has reached you, it is bliss. Now, in the Buddhist systems, particularly as we get them from Tibet, the, the Buddhas appear in two aspects. There's the peaceful aspect, and there is the wrathful aspect of the deity. Now, if you're clinging to your ego and its little world and hanging on, and the deity wants to open you, he, the wrathful aspect comes. It seems to you terrible. But if you are open and open enough, then that same deity would be experienced as bliss. Well, Jesus talked of bringing a sword, and I don't believe he meant that in terms of using it against your, the, your fellow, but he meant it in terms of opening the ego. I came to cut you free from the binding ego of your own self This is self what's centered. known in, in Sanskrit as viveka, uh, discrimination. And there is a, uh, a Buddha figure called Manjushri, who will be who's shown with a flaming sword over his head. Yes. And what is the sword for? It's to distinguish the merely temporal from the eternal. It's the sword that distinguishes that which is enduring from that which is merely passing. The tick, tick, tick of time shuts out eternity. And we live in the field of time. But what is living in the field of time is an eternal principle that's inflected this way. What's the eternal principle? That one. <laughs> Which is? Well, we call it God, but that personifies it, you see. That's it is the experience of the eternity. Yeah. The experience of the eternal. As right? what you are, yes. I would say. That, that's... that whatever eternity is, is here right now. Or nowhere else. Or everywhere else. If, if you don't experience it now, you're never going to get it. Because when you get to heaven, that's not eternal. That's just everlasting. Uh, he heaven lasts a long time. It's not eternal. It's everlasting. Well, I don't follow that now. The eternal is beyond time. The concept of time shuts out eternity. Time is our invention. Our experience, yeah. But the ultimate unqualified mystery is beyond human experience. It becomes inflected. As they say, there is a condescension on the part of the infinite to the mind of man, and that is what looks like God. So whatever it is we experience, we have to express in language that is just not up to the occasion. That's it. It's That's inadequate. what poetry is for. Poetry is a language that uh, has to be penetrated. It, it, it doesn't shut you off. It, it opens. It, it's the rhythm, the, the uh, precise choice of words that will have implications and suggestions that go past the word is uh, what has to happen. And then you get what Joyce calls the radiance, the epiphany. The epiphany is the showing through of the uh, essence what Aquinas calls the quiditas, the whatness. The whatness is the Brahman. 
Why do you think it is there is in so many people this deep yearning to live forever, to secure my place in heaven? When you realize what heaven is, uh, I mean, in, in the works of such a person as uh, Thomas Aquinas, it is the beholding of the beatific image of God, uh, which is a timeless moment. You know, time explodes. So, again, eternity is not something everlasting. And you can have it right here now in your relationships. Um, I've lost a lot of friends, and my parents and all. And uh, a realization that has come to me very, very keenly is that I haven't lost them. That uh, that moment when I was with them had an everlasting quality about it that is now still with me. What it gave me is still with me. And uh, there's a kind of intimation of immortality in that. Do you see what I mean? But in the sense that you were talking about eternity beyond the body, yeah. experienced now in the body, yes. but being beyond time, has anybody told a story that... that well, there's the story of the Buddha who uh, encountered a woman who had just lost her son, and uh, she was in, in great grief. And the Buddha said... Uh, I suggest you just ask around to meet somebody who has not lost a treasured child or husband or relative or friend. And uh, this business of understanding the relationship of mortality to something in you that is transcendent of mortality is the big job. Now, there's a wonderful work of Schopenhauer's. He says, when you reach a certain age, and he wrote this when he was say, in his 60s or so, and look back over your life, it seems to have had an order. It seems to have had a, a, been composed by someone. Hmm. And those events that when they occurred seemed merely accidental and occasional and just something that happened turn out to be the main elements in a in a consistent plot. So he says, who composed this plot? And he said, and just as your dreams are composed by an aspect of yourself of which your consciousness is unaware, so your whole life has been composed by the will within you. And then he says, just as those people who you met by chance became effective agents in the structuring of your life, so you have been an agent in the structuring of other lives. And the whole thing gears together like one big symphony, he says, everything influencing and structuring everything else. And uh, he said, it's as though our lives were the dream of a single dreamer in which all the dream characters are dreaming too. And so everything links to everything else moved out of the will in nature. It's a beautiful idea. It's an idea that occurs in India in the, idea, in the image of what's called the net of Indra or the net of gems. It's a net of gems where every gem reflects all the other ones. And they also have the idea of uh, a spontaneous and uh, simultaneous arising. Everything arises 
in relation to everything else. And so you can't blame anybody for anything. It's all working around. It's a marvelous idea. It's as though there were an intention behind it, and yet it all is by chance. None of us has lived the life that he intended. And yet, we all have lived a life that had a purpose. I, do you believe that? I don't believe life has a real purpose. I mean, when you really right. see what life is, it's uh, a lot of protoplasm with an urge to uh, reproduce and continue in being. Not true. That, That's hmm? not true. It well, now, wait a minute. Just sheer life can't be said to have a purpose because look at it on all the different purposes it has all over the lot. But each, each incarnation, you might say, has a potentiality and the function of life is to live that for potentiality. Well, how do you do it? Well, again, when my students would ask, you know, uh, sh should I do this? Should I do that? Uh, Dad says I should do this. And my answer is folly or bliss. Yeah. There's something inside you that knows you're in the center, that knows you're on the beam, that knows you're off the beam. And if you get off the beam to earn money, you've lost your life. So it is not the destination that counts, it's the journey. Yes. Uh, there's a wonderful old man, I think he's still alive in Germany, uh, uh, Graf Kalfried, uh, Kalfried Graf Durkheim. And uh, he says, when you're on a journey and the end keeps getting further and further away, then you realize that the real end is the journey. It's not bad. Uh, this is it. This moment now is the heavenly moment. And I like the idea that Eden was not. Eden will be. Eden is. The kingdom of the Father spread upon the earth and men do not see it. I mean, Eden is. There's some image of Shiva, the god Shiva, surrounded by circles of flame, rings of fire. That's the dance of the world, the dancer whose dance is the universe. And in this hand, he has a little drum that goes tick, tick, tick. That is the drum of time. The tick of time which shuts out eternity. And we are enclosed in that. In this hand, there is a flame which burns away the veil of time and opens us up to eternity. And in his hair is a, a skull and a new moon, the death and rebirth at the same moment, the moment of becoming. That's a powerful image for any life. Not well, the goal of, of, of your quest for yourself is to find that burning point in yourself, that becoming thing in yourself, which is fearless and desireless, but just becoming. This is the condition of a warrior going into battle with perfect courage. Uh, that's, that's life in movement. A plant growing, I think of grass, you know. Every two weeks a chap comes out with a lawnmower and cuts it down. Suppose the grass would say, well, for peace sake, what's the use? It's the coming into being, that's it, and that's the life point in you. And that's what these myths are concerned to uh, communicate to.
Well, I've always interpreted that powerful, mysterious statement, the Word was made flesh, as this eternal principle finding itself in the human journey, yes. the human experience. Now, I don't know what the Word is, and I don't even know what flesh is, but I know that there is that experience of epiphany when you when you meet what you don't know and understand it. Yeah, and, and you can find it in yourself too, the word in yourself. Where do you find it if you don't find it in yourself? Well, right. Goethe says, all things are metaphors. Alles vergängliche ist nur ein Gleichnis. Everything that's transitory is but a metaphorical reference. That's what we all are. And to see the word, we're getting back to that, your, your radiance that we spoke of before, comes out here again now. But how does one worship a metaphor, love a metaphor, die for a metaphor? Well, that's what people are doing all over the place. That's what people are doing all over the place. Dying for metaphors. And when you really realize the sound om, the sound of the mystery of the word everywhere, then you don't have to go out and die for anything because it's right there all around. And just sit still and see it and experience it and know it. Explain om. That's the first time you've used that. <clears throat> well, om is a word that, what can we say, represents to our ears that sound of the energy of the universe of which all things are manifestations. And om, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, word. It's written A-U-M. You start in the back of the mouth, ah. And then U, you fill the mouth. And M closes at the mouth. And when you have pronounced this properly, all vowel sounds are in that uh, pronunciation, om. And uh, consonants are regarded simply as interruptions of OM. And all words are thus fragments of OM, as all images are fragments of the form of forms of which all things are just reflections. And so OM is a symbol, a symbolic sound that puts you in touch with that throbbing being that is uh, the universe. When you hear some of these Tibetan monks that are over here from the Gyutdo Monastery outside of Lhasa, when they sing the Om, you know what it means, all right. That's the zoom of being in the world. And uh, to be in touch with that and to get the sense of that, that is the peak experience of all. Ah, ooh, mm. The birth, the coming into being, and the dissolution, the cycle of that. And this is called the four element syllable. What is the fourth element? Ah, ooh, Mm, and the silence out of which it comes, and back into which it goes, and which underlies it. Now, my life is the ah, 
ooh, mm, but there is a silence that underlies it. And that is what we would call the immortal. This is the mortal, and that's the immortal. And there wouldn't be this if there weren't that. The meaning is essentially wordless. Yes. Well, words are always qualifications and limitations. And yet, uh, Joe, all we puny human beings are left with is this miserable language, beautiful though it is, that falls short of trying to describe. That's right. And that's why it's a peak experience to break past all that every now and then to realize, oh, ah, I think so. All right, people, we're back. The Masks of Eternity. One of the final interviews with Joseph Campbell just a few months after that last one, he graduated from this dimension. What an incredible talk. Both of those talks are two separate interviews. Really good information, really powerful stuff. As it is with all of Joseph Campbell's information. I just really loved when he talked about love, lean toward the lights, so much uh, that he went into. Love is the burning point of life. Yes, there's so much that Joseph Campbell said about love in that first part. Bryn, what did you think? Two incredible episodes. The end of our trilogy. What did you think? Absolutely. Those were great. Um, Just bringing in so many universal truths and looking at how our physical humanity is intertwined with the spiritual and the, the beyond physical. Um, Both talks actually really played a lot into each other talking about, you know, moving from the lower realms of the physical into the spiritual, but that you have to walk that polarity and, um, find that spiritual through your physicality and then also the circles and looking at the wheel of the year and the wheel of life um, and talking about the, I mean, that was in the second part. He was talking about the wheel of life and all that circle symbology, but then looking at uh, the love and goddess portion where he was speaking about um, the mythology of the birth of the new year and the, the birth of the Christ through the Virgin and all of that happening within ourselves. Um, that, that birth of understanding and compassion and yeah, super cool stuff. I really appreciated the part where he talked about how God is trying to describe something that's beyond being like people kind of put this concept of God as the final piece of the puzzle, but really it's just encapsulating something that's beyond encapsulation that we're just like trying to understand it just a little bit with our own modes of perception, but really it's just beyond even that. Absolutely. Yes. And he said that religion was like a block of understanding something religious that we're trying to like quantify it and think about it in this you know, with our mind and in this linear way, but that it's, you know, beyond something that we can quantify or put into words. Um, And then he kind of talked about, you know, that's why we have poetry and that's why we have mythology and all of those great, you know, epic poems and things to try to, um, 
to go beyond just our regular vocabulary and ideology of, of how things are. And that's why we have people like Joseph Campbell to help <laughs> break this down for us. And it's so cool. Thanks to the miracle of recording that we get to hear these conversations so perfectly as if Joseph Campbell is here with us. And I have to, of course, shout out Bill Moyers, who did a fantastic job interviewing Joseph Campbell, had great questions, really loved his rhythm and flow. Really cool guy. He did a great job. So shout out to Bill Moyers, the interviewer. Yeah, I actually really enjoy the way that he interviews. And, you know, he speaks about Joseph Campbell saying, oh, his, you know, encyclopedic knowledge and all the way he comes up with things. But I also felt that Bill Moyers himself, like he was really able to have such a great rapport with him and say, oh, well, what about this Bible passage? And how about this other mythology? Like he really had a wealth of knowledge on his own, or at least he studied really well before he interviewed him because he was able to, to really keep their conversation going in um, a really beautiful manner. Yeah, I thought he did great. And so many other points that we could go into. He talked about so many things, but it was just really positive. I feel like you have a few more things, Bryn. You did take some amazing notes as usual. <laughs> Always do. I mean, I feel like all of my notes are consolidated into really a lot of what we just talked about. Um, one other piece just to put on top of that, I guess, is um, where they talked about the trickster, archi uh, the trickster archetype. Um, which I think is just a really fun thing. And that's something that's in so many different mythologies from around the world. And it kind of, again, speaks to that. Just when you think you understand it, or just when you think you've got it pinned down, then here comes a, a facet of the God force to sort of turn it on its head or show you another piece that, you know, another angle that you didn't know or you know, completely just turn it upside down. Um, the Raven is one of my favorite tricksters in um, some of the mythologies of the world. And he does a really good job of just showing you the grayness, the benignness, how different things had different meanings when he was talking about how one perspective was that Lucifer loved God so much that he couldn't love anything else. There was just so much unique perspective and a lot of grayness like it wasn't black it wasn't white it was just gray so mm -hmm. really cool stuff Brian. thank you so much for being here uh as we close out our final chapter of the joseph campbell trilogy with bill moyers there's a chance he could be back on the show in another fashion but this is just closing out this trilogy so thank you so much for being here Brent. i deeply appreciate it absolutely this was really great Thanks for having me. And I hope that you all learned something from Joseph Campbell as Bryn and I have. How could you not? I know. Right? <laughs> There's so, something to learn, right? Yeah, and he's so easy to listen to. It's really, it's really amazing. So I hope you gained something from that. I really appreciate you joining us from around the world. Thank you again for all your support and everything that you do. And we'll see you next week. Midnight on Earth.